from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james john morrow on today now if you don't know him he's a fascinating guy he's made millions of dollars writing and he's helped thousands and thousands of other people make a living from writing, and he talks about that. But what's also, I hate to say it, interesting about John, but he has been paralyzed from the neck down since he was born. And he's really such an inspiration to so many people. And, you know, he's a great success, and he talks about that. I've known him for a long time, for about, gosh, I guess eight or nine years now. And uh, just always a pleasure to have him on the podcast. We talk about everything from, what's going on with the medical industry in the US to how to make a living writing to what's going to be the effect of AI on not only writing, but every industry. So, and that was fascinating. It was towards the end, it was a fascinating discussion. So big thanks to John Morrow. You can find him on smartblogger.com and also you can listen to him right now. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show.
So we're going to talk to John Morrow about lots of things, particularly how to make a living as a writer in these difficult times. But John, just informed me, he's moving from Austin to Monterey, Mexico, because apparently, John, what was the statistic you just said? I've seen stats that 60% of people who used to work in healthcare are not returning after COVID. So like 60% of nurses, for instance, are mm-hmm. just gone now. Yeah, and it's, that's not just nurses. So there are all of these different classifications of, of people in healthcare. They're registered nurses. They're licensed vocational nurses. They're certified nursing assistants. There are medical assistants. So you're losing a huge collection of all of those that just aren't going back or don't intend to. And where did they go? A lot of them are starting other careers where they can work from home. I mean, I know you talk about you could be you could write from home. This is going to be the topic of this podcast. So yeah. <laughs> what, what else are these healthcare people doing from home? And and didn't they get into nursing because they loved healthcare? What I hear from most nurses is, I really love helping people. I love helping with medical issues, all of those things. But they really, really dislike the medical system and the way everything went down during COVID. Yeah. Um, and they just don't want to repeat it. A lot of people got burned out trying to help. And then the the American healthcare system has also just become very litigious. There's a lot of documentation. So you'll have nurses who will spend half of their day, sometimes more, filling out paperwork rather than working with patients. And that's that's usually not what they went to school for. And and what kind of careers do you find that they're moving into? Is there is there one or two in particular, or uh, are they just completely going to different I, industries? I, I haven't seen any research on that. I don't know. The only evidence I would have would be anecdotal. But I mean, to some extent, they're trying to get some jobs working remotely as nurses. So with insurance companies. Um, Although the ones who I've talked to do that are also not very happy. But they get to work from home. Um, some are are moving into entirely different careers and going back to school. Do you think, is there such a thing as like concierge nursing where it's like kind of their nurse for hire, but independent of the medical system? There is to a degree. I mean, the I'm on the higher end of that system. Mm-hmm. Um, I pay, in the U.S., I pay 150 to 200 grand a year for nursing services. Out of my own pocket, insurance covers nothing. Oh, you're, you're kidding me. Why does insurance cover nothing? Nothing. What do they expect you to do? So insurance, uh, all insurance carriers, except for Medicaid, this doesn't even include Medicare in the U.S., but all insurance carriers um, do not cover any sort of long-term care. So if you have a, an illness with an indefinite time horizon where you need care, their solution, uh, they will pay for a nursing home. So if you want to go to a nursing home, uh, they will pay for that, but they will not pay for home, for home care. And so you're going to Monterey to find nurses. Why are there nurses there? Because there's a surplus of nurses in Mexico. 
Really? So, so Monterey is only about a seven-hour drive from Austin. And um, I, I did an experiment. So when I post an ad to hire here in the U.S., before COVID, I would get maybe 50 applicants a week. Now I'm down to maybe 10 um, from the same hiring systems. Um, when I posted an ad in Monterey, um, I got over 200 qualified applicants in 24 hours. Oh my gosh. And why is there such a surplus there, just seven hours away? Some of it is cultural. Um, the, the Mexican culture really, I think places, um, higher value on, on caring for people. Um, another part of it is that a lot of the, it, being a nurse, there is more hands on. It's not as much paperwork because unless you're in the Mexican government insurance program, I think it's called IMSS, IMSS, everything is private pay. So there, there isn't like a lot of the paperwork. Um, people are not as litigious. Um, there are even laws against suing doctors in some cases. Um, so because of that, the, I think you just have a much greater population of people looking to do that kind of work. And then when someone like me comes in, I can hire a registered nurse there for um, about $800 a month is, oh the, is the salary. This is someone with a four-year degree who's worked in the hospital. And that's basically, I took the highest wage in the city and I added like 100 bucks a month to it. And you've been through this before. I mean, you, when you were first starting to make money, you know, writing and blogging and so on, you, I remember you moved to Mexico for a while. You were, you were telling me this before because, because you couldn't get the right, you could, you weren't allowed to make money in the U S basically. So it's, it's ironic and and funny. It's like a repeat of my life that I've tried everything there is to solve this problem. I've, I mean, I've talked to house managers of billionaires, um, I've interviewed people who run agencies. I've talked to nannying companies to see if I could somehow entice nannies into doing things. Um, and in in the U.S., honestly, if anyone had found a solution, it would have been me. I probably get the best care there is uh, for someone with my condition. Um, and if and I also have a lot of money to throw at the problem, where a lot of people don't. Um, and even with all of the money to throw at the problem, basically you could have an unlimited check. I could be offering a million dollars a year for nurses. It wouldn't totally solve the problem. It wouldn't totally solve the problem just because there's such a shortage. And in, let's say you need emergency care in Mexico, you'll be able to find that no problem. Yeah. So the beautiful part about Monterey, Monterey has probably the best healthcare in all of Mexico. Um, most people aren't aware because it's not a tourist destination. I mean, it's it's I think it's over five million people. It's a huge city. I mean, maybe not compared to like New York or LA, but it's it's bigger than Austin. And they have world class healthcare. 
there. Now, also, it's only a three-hour drive to the border, and you can get a helicopter insurance policy for about 500 bucks, where if your physician says you need to be flown to the U.S. for emergency medical care, they'll just put you in a helicopter and take you to Texas. Wow. So how long do you think you'll stay in Monterey? So my plan is to actually hire nurses. Um, there is a, a way, there's a loophole in the law uh, that I've already used once. I have one Mexican nurse now who works for me off and on in the U.S. Um, and if you get them classified as domestic servants and you have your full-time residence in Mexico, then you can get them a, um, a visa to be able to travel freely with you. Oh, so wow. my plan is, is to go down there, hire all of my nurses. They'll have to be employed for six months. I'll maintain the permanent residence there. And then after six months, uh, they'll be able to travel back and forth to the U.S. however much I want. Oh, well, that sounds really good, John. And just to refresh my memory, like when you first went to Mexico, why weren't you allowed to make money here in order to get, like you were making too much money to get medical care, I guess. Like yeah. what was the actual law? I, I'm not really familiar. So like I said earlier, Medicaid is the only insurance carrier and, and that's government insurance for the impoverished, basically. You can only get it if you're living below the poverty line. Obamacare raised that a little bit in some states, but Medicaid has income limits. And at the time, it was $800 a month. That's how much you were allowed to make. That's how much I was allowed to make. Now, this is like 12 years ago now. So I'm sure it's a little bit higher now, but that's how much I was allowed to make. Anything above that, in, in the state I was in, which was North Carolina, uh, I had to spend on healthcare. So basically, if I made $5,000, I'd have to spend $4,200 on healthcare. If I didn't, I would immediately lose all benefits. Oh my gosh. Well, I guess it's, the, it's another topic completely, but I, I wish there was a solution. <laughs> but obviously, a lot of smart people have thought about a solution, and who knows what's your solution is going to work the best, which is just leave the country and go to Monterey. It sounds great. And, you know, hopefully you're, you're in six months, you'll be able to go back and forth pretty smoothly. Yeah. I mean, so that's the plan. I, it, I, I'm really disappointed. Um, I'm a pretty stubborn person when it comes to solving problems, but uh, that particular one, I just couldn't solve here. And so, I mean, I think the big lesson for anyone maybe in a similar boat is sometimes you find good answers out, outside your own country. And if you can be mobile enough to be able to kind of switch countries for different benefits, that's an amazing thing to be able to do. Yeah. And, and John, look, you've built up a great career. It's been fortunate that you're able to be so literally mobile and have flexibility in your medical care. And it's a shame so many other people because of the system or whatever, don't have the opportunities you have with that. But let's talk about your career because you're, I read your blogs. They're always great. I've been reading them for years. You write about my favorite topic of all, which is writing mm -hmm. in particular, how other people can make a living as a writer. And, and 
you started off as a, a blogger when when people were making I would say people were making more money as a blogger and an article writer, freelance article writer yep. 20 years ago, but or 10 years ago even. But I feel like lately content is more free now and it's harder to get gigs as a writer. Would you say it is now? I mean, your current blogs would suggest that it's more possible than ever now to make money as a writer. How would one go about it, basically? So the writing market has changed a lot over the past 20 years. I mean, it used to be, I mean, let's go even further back. It used to be that no one could start their own blog, their own website. You had to write for someone else's publication, right? You had to, you right. Had to write, write for newspapers or magazines. You had to be chosen um, by someone. Exactly. And then we we moved into this era to where you could start your own blog. You could you could write on different platforms. You could build up your own following. And that was a big change. But the other big change that went along with that is that businesses started figuring out, okay, if we publish content, then we will be able to attract people to us rather than having to pay for ads. And so the whole content marketing industry grew up, which includes more than just written text. But in general, uh, the content marketing industry, uh, which is businesses, okay, spend about three times more on writers than all of the magazines and newspapers in the world combined. Wow, I did not know that. So for instance, like you take Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Newsweek, Time Magazine, whatever, Sports Illustrated, combine all that together. And companies like, I don't know, Procter & Gamble, Exxon, Pepsi-Cola, these companies, or, or smaller companies, I don't know, you'll have to tell me, they pay more to, to writers. Yeah, it's a mix of companies. Or the other thing that's really, really common, a lot of larger companies especially work with agencies. So most of our students now at Smart Blogger uh, will typically start the career working with an agency. And agencies are virtually hiring all the time. Um, and what, what do yeah. they hire for? Like, what's a typical gig look like? So different agencies specialize in different things. But so there, there are two broad categories of content. There's search-driven content, which is Google. Okay, I want my website to show up on Google. Therefore, I'm going to write content that caters to Google. Or your other option is to go after social, which is LinkedIn, Instagram, to some extent, YouTube. Although YouTube's an interesting hybrid between the two. And so typically what you'll have is agencies either focusing on search or on social. The majority of the writing jobs are in search. I'd say about 80%. Well, what, um, is that, what yeah. does that mean? So like, let's say I'm a company and I, I need the word out on my company. Mm -hmm. First off, am I, a, am I a Fortune 100 company? Am I a small or medium business? Like what kind of company am I that I'm most interested in this? The, the majority of people who spend significantly on content marketing are... They, it begins to start around revenue between five to ten million a year. Okay. So, so these are not tiny businesses. It's it's, um, but it's not always a Fortune five hundred company, right? So it's anywhere from five to ten million a year up to billions of dollars a year. 
And the reason I need search-related content, I need articles that are going to be good enough that other people link to them so they rise up on search engines. Is that how it works? Like I'm always naive about SEO. I sort of, I, it used to be SEO was like, oh, you got to put in the right meta tags and have the right title. Yeah. But it's, I always tell people, don't worry about any of that. Just write a good article and everybody will link to it. And that's how it'll rise up on Google. But maybe I'm being naive. It's, it's a good general advice. I mean, Google's algorithm, if you break it down, um, what has never really changed is that they're looking for the best content linked to by the most influential people. Right. Those two components, best content linked to by the most influential people, are the two things that have never really changed about search. Um, now, the way they define best content has changed. The way they define the most influential people, that changes. But, but the core components never really change. So if you're writing really, really good content and other influential people are talking about you, you're, you're in a good starting place at least. So let's say I'm a young person. I like writing. I want to do writing. I want to work from home. I don't want to necessarily have a, a standard boss, a standard job. What first steps can I take to start a career in writing? What can I expect? How long will it take me to make a living? What kind of can I get make real wealth out of it? I mean, you've made uh, real wealth out of writing. Well, what's the path? the The first big decision that you have to make is what kind of writing do you want to focus on? The two big types are content writing and copywriting. Content writing is where you are creating content to bring in visitors to a website. Copywriting is where you are convincing those visitors to do something. Sometimes it's buy products, sometimes it's sign up to an email list, any number of things. But it's you're influencing them to take an action. So those are the two broad categories on really sophisticated teams. Um, you, you'll find you'll find those two different specialties working together very often on, on the same team. So that's your first decision. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So then from there, once you've chosen one of those paths, then you really want to focus on building the skills necessary to get the results companies are looking for. So that, that's a really dense statement. I can break it down. In content, what, what businesses are looking for is traffic, is visitors. So... If you go to a job interview with a portfolio of stuff you published in magazines, they don't really care that much. But on the other hand, if you go to a job interview and say, go Google freelance writing jobs, I'm on page one. I know how to rank. I can prove it. You can go Google these terms and see what I'm doing. Those kinds of people get hired instantly. Hmm. On the copywriting side, it's measuring the amount of money, typically, that you made your client. And a good copywriter will be able to tell you, with this campaign we worked on, made this client $100,000, you know, my fee was $5,000. Would you be willing to make a trade like that? And of course, the answer is yes. Right, and so, so just to distinguish a little bit more, so like, let's say someone has the Blue Zone diet plan, and they, they have it on their website, they want to sell it to people for $39.99. They yep. hire a copywriter who creates the landing page, essentially, 
and yep. maybe and also writes the emails to an email list yep. that go out and and it's designed it's not necessarily designed to tell a story so it's not like the arc of the hero but it's designed to to convert people into customers to mm -hmm. give the information that's needed to express the urgency that's needed mm -hmm. um to express how this solution is special and unique and, mm -hmm. and so on whereas a content writer might be like for delta airlines oh i traveled for 100 straight hours on delta planes and this was my experience so that might mm -hmm. be like content writing yeah exactly and for your blue diet pill i mean it might be um i i lost 40 pounds in four days while eating loads of chocolate cake here's how i mean wh wh whatever um i mean there are some ethical yep. standards that copywriters are held to but yeah yep we, we get it having those two work together ultimately that's how businesses make tons of money is by having those two different components so the content writers who are most in demand are typically really good at showing traffic stats if you're a beginner you know you're coming out of college you're you're looking for for jobs you don't have any of that proof so really the big question becomes how do i become that person who has all of that proof right and and the answer is is kind of a couple of different things first of all you really have to know what you're doing you can't like fake it you actually have to know what you're doing um and and typically you're not going to know what you're doing just by reading a, a few articles on on you know Neil Patel's website or whatever website about SEO. Um, that's that's typically not enough to really know what you're doing. What I'm talking about is skill. So, for example, people who are are really good at ranking on Google, they've written hundreds of headlines. They know what a content brief is. What's a content brief? Yeah, so a content brief is a one-page summary of everything that needs to go into the article to make it rank. All right? So this is one reason, by the way, that agencies employ most writers. Is because if, if you go to your average business and you start talking about content briefs, they ask the same question. What's a content brief? They have no idea. A content brief, though, is really actually essential. I can almost predict the success of a content team based on the quality of their content briefs. Really? So, like, well, like, give me an example. Like, let's say I'm writing about, I don't know, make up any topic you want. And what would the content brief, like, how would I know what needs to go into that article to, to rank well on Google? The, the most important part of it these days is actually the the strategist in some cases the, this person is called a content strategist in some cases they're called an editor um would actually tell you not only here are the keywords but they would actually give you the outline and they would give you the competing competing posts so here are the three posts that we want to outrank on google here are the here here are the terms Here's the outline for the post that we believe will outrank them. And here are my thoughts on how to beat those three competitors. So the writer is receiving all of that information before they actually start writing. Wow. So, so like, what, what's an even more specific example? Am I writing about like a celebrity or am I writing about 
you know, since I'm competing with other articles, am I writing about trending topics or? Often. So it, this is where you get into the question of search engine strategy. So one of the most important questions that any successful company has to answer is, what keywords do we want to rank for? For some companies, that is, like for your diet pill example, that may be how to lose weight. Or it may be diet pills. So how to lose weight would be what we call informational intent. It's people are looking for information around this, this problem. Diet pills, or best places to buy diet pills, that would be a commercial intent. So typically those keywords have even more competition and they're harder to rank for, but they also have higher value. Someone's much more ready to buy if they're searching for diet pills versus how to lose weight. So you have to come up with the whole strategy. And so really what a modern successful content team looks like is you'll have a content strategist who is managing anywhere from five to a hundred freelance writers and is basically doing all of that analysis and writing the content briefs. And that's their main job. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. 
You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Like, okay, let's say I'm a freelance writer and I contact one of these agencies and we'll talk about which ones in a, in a second, but I contact one of these agencies and they hire me. Let's say, let's say it's a small, medium business, you know, five to 10 million in revenues that's hiring them, the agency. What's a typical gig? Like what, give me, what's an example gig that, that someone, you know, has done. Yeah. So a typical starting gig is they'll just pay you to write one article. About and what? Like what, what? What's a, like an example? It it could be, um, I mean, for example, I mean, let's say they have a client who is selling diet pills. Um, they may assign you to write an article about, um, probably some sort of long tail topic. Long tail means like very specific and not a whole lot of search traffic. Um, so they would say something like, uh, the best diet pills for people with diabetes, for example, and they would give you a content brief and they would say, you have two days to write this. Go. And, and what's in the content brief? So diabetes is in there, you know, yep. obviously you have to talk about diets. What, what else do you, do you have to mention specific diets? Do you have to mention... Uh, you know what diet you have to describe what diabetes is like. What what's in the content brief? So what a content strategist will do is they will look at the articles that are already ranking for that keyword, and they will a lot of times copy and paste those articles into a document and even into AI tools. These days is what most content teams do, and the AI will tell them, it'll reverse engineer the algorithm. This is where we're getting to the really advanced stuff. And it'll tell the strategist, here are the terms Google expects you to have in this article. Otherwise, they're unlikely to rank you. And they really? can see that statistically based on what's already ranking on that page. And then where do you pub, where do you publish the article? Just on your website or do yeah. you go on Medium? Do you go on LinkedIn? Most companies do their own website because the beautiful thing about your own website is then you get to have all of your own cookies. Uh, you get to have pop-ups. Um, you get to have special offers and sidebars. So your chances of converting the traffic, either then or you can follow up with ads because you have cookies on these people now. Um, you can retarget them. Your value per visitor is probably 20x if it's on your website versus any of those other platforms. What What if your site itself doesn't rank high on Google? So, so for instance, the Wall Street Journal 
probably automatically is considered influential by Google, Mm -hmm. but some random business might not be considered influential by Google. And so none of their articles are ranking well. So a piece of Google's algorithm is what's called domain authority. And domain authority is the authority of your entire website. And so Wall Street Journal, very likely to rank right away for everything. If you're a relatively new business, if you're competing against the Wall Street Journal, it's actually going to be very difficult because they have very high domain authority. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it's not the only factor. Another factor is topical authority. So topical authority is I have lots of articles around this one particular topic. So for example, I mean, Smart Blog on my site now is probably the biggest writing website in the world now. We have a, a smaller competitor who I'm very familiar with and very friendly with. Her, her name is Elna Kane. And Elna Kane, for a long time, was outranking us on freelance writing. And it's because she had over 100 different articles on, on freelance writing, where we only had like five. Okay. Now, we didn't outrank. Elna, even though we had a higher domain authority, we didn't outrank her until we also published 50, 75, 100 articles on freelance writing and raised our topical authority in the eyes of Google. So one answer, if you're competing against a a site with a higher domain authority, is to raise your topical authority. So just publish more content around a smaller topic set. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you were ranking high in writing, but this other site was ranking high in freelance writing because they had many more articles specifically about that topic. Exactly. And so it's interesting because now it makes me think like, let's say I'm a dentist or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it pays for me to, let's say I'm a, a divorce lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I write tons of articles about divorces, that might be a way that I start ranking higher on the topic of divorce. Or let's say I do divorces in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh-huh. This is how divorces in Memphis, Tennessee are like. So it's a very specific topic. That might make me rank higher than the other divorce firms in Memphis, Tem- Tennessee. That's exactly right. And so then they hire agencies who hire writers. And what, like, let's say I'm a, a, a beginning writer. I want to make a living writing. I'm writing a novel on the side like every aspiring writer is, uh-huh. but you know, I still need to make a living and pay the rent. What, yep. uh, what would I do? So assuming you know what you're doing, um, you can, agencies typically pay, a good agency will typically pay about 10 cents a word to start. Hmm. Okay, so that means to write a 1,000 word article, you're going to get paid about 100 bucks. All right, it's not good money. Um, it's not terrible, terrible money, but it's not good money. Um, but that's kind of where people get started. From there, once you develop more of a portfolio, um, agencies will sometimes raise you 15, 20 cents a word. May, the highest I've seen is maybe 30 cents a word. Okay. So 30 cents a word, same thousand word article, you're getting paid 200 bucks. All right. It's still not fantastic. So the real money in writing is actually made by the strategists. It's the one putting together those content briefs. Hmm. Um, a content strategist, typically the agency will hire one of those full-time. So a content strategist 
uh, just starting out, we're the leading training company in the world now for content strategists. You guys are um, a smart blogger. Yeah, smart bloggers. We have a waiting list for people to hire our students. Hmm. Um, the average content strategist makes starts out at 50 to 70 for their first salary. And typically, you see the salary increasing by about $10,000 a year. So you can make six figures with you know five, five to seven years experience as a content strategist. So, and, and, you know, I think a lot of writers, I don't know if they want to do, well, I, I don't know, really. You, you would know more than me what the makeup is of these people, but I would think a lot of writers just want to write articles. Like I said, they want to write, oh, Delta needs something, Procter & Gamble needs uh-huh. something, this small diet company needs something. And so they would write, I, I would think that they could do bulk, even if it's 10 cents a word, write five articles a day. They're making $500 a day. And that's, yeah. that's a pretty good living too. Yeah. It's not bad. So yeah, you can make a decent living doing that. You can even, if all you want is some side income, I have, I have tons of students. We're, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of students now who have gotten to the point where they make one to $3,000 a month on the side of their full-time job hmm. just That's from good. writing articles. And then if they really enjoy it, maybe then they go full time and make maybe 5000 full time writing articles it's it's not impossible you're really having to hustle and do a lot of writing if you want to make good money and you have to be fast so one of the biggest differences like me when early in my career versus now and and in general i think it's any writer you learn to produce really good content really fast so in the beginning, a, a thousand words sounds like a lot. I, I can write a thousand publishable words in an hour now. I mean, you probably can too. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I started my professional career. I started writing in like the 90s, but I started my being paid for writing in 2002, early 2003. And at first I'd write run, one article every two weeks. And this is for financial publications I started yep. out writing. But then I was writing, I mean, I got fast, like you say, like that's a skill you learn. And I was writing up to, I could write up to 10 articles a day if I wanted to. Yeah, yeah, you totally can. So I know plenty of writers who do that. And that, that's a certain type of mentality, mindset too. Um, now, what I typically see from a lot of our students is, I mean, so just like you said, a lot of writers don't want to be strategists. A lot of writers also don't want to write 10 articles a day. Yeah. So then, then it's, I mean, kind of pick your poison. Which one do you want? A lot of our students, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them do go on to become strategists at some point. And then there are others who, who just, they're, they're happy. For instance, the most common one I see is... We have a lot of students who are stay-at-home moms, and they're they're very happy making two to three thousand dollars a month, just on the side whenever it fits in their schedule to write those articles. Uh, like a young person, I mean, when when I was young, if I could make two thousand dollars a month, I would be rich. Yeah. So when I was like twenty years old, twenty-two years old. So for a phase of your life or particular circumstances, I think it's fine. And if you get 
in good with two to three agencies and they respect your work, that's pretty easy to do. We've, we've helped tons of people do it. And so, okay, so let's say, um, a, a, you know, I have a choice between bartending on the side or writing on the side. I'm, and I'm, like I have a daughter who's majoring in writing. Uh, mm-hmm. She's a good writer. She's mm-hmm. never done kind of content writing or copywriting or anything like that. But she's maybe tired of being a waitress on the side you know, and she, she'd be interested. I'm thinking she would be interested in writing. I'm going to have her listen to this podcast. We'll see. And <laughs> uh, what should she do? It, it depends on her income and lifestyle goals. So kind of the hierarchy, I, I kind of laid out the bottom of the hierarchy, but it does go higher. Okay. So above the content strategist. So let's say I have a student who's been a content strategist for five years. They come back to me and they say, listen, you know, I've had a pretty good run, but I'm wondering, could I get even bigger opportunities? At that point, typically one of two things happens. Either they start their own agency or they start their own publication, like Smart Blogger, for example. Hmm. And they basically become a magazine. Most of the magazine-style sites these days are started by content strategies from people like agencies. And so what and so let me ask you a question like they do this because they're very familiar with how to make any article on their website rank highly on Google so they know all the tools to find all the right words and all the right topics to to constant, consistently rank high on Google and then that attracts either advertisers or clients or or mm-hmm. you know affiliates or whatever. Mm-hmm. And eventually I mean, so this was the path that I followed. I, I worked for Brian Clark. I was a, an editor over a copy blogger. Um, I oh, had, yeah. Like, I was trying to remember uh, what site he had. Copy blogger. Is that still around? It kind of, yeah. Brian has since sold the site. Um, but it's still around and, and maybe starting to get a little bit of a resurgence now. It fell off its peak. When I left the company, uh, it was getting... Uh, I think we got about 50 million page views one year. So that's a lot of traffic. Yeah. I think it's way below that now. But during its K-Day, it, it, was, it was the site if you were interested in, in writing, copywriting, marketing, and that kind of stuff. So I was an editor there. And I helped grow Copyblogger. I mean, literally made it worth millions of dollars more, I'm sure. I wasn't the only person there, but I was one of the main people there. There were a lot of talented people there at the time. And eventually, I kind of had this idea in my head, why am I making other people rich? I can be making myself rich. I can choose myself. And, Good catchphrase. And, yeah. So, so I left and, and started my own thing and, and did exactly the same thing that, that I did for them, for myself. And, and that's where Smart Bulger came from. Were they upset at you at first? No. I was actually... I mean, it was a very mutual parting. The, the way it kind of all played out behind the scenes was I told the owner, listen, if, if I want to stay, I want stock. Hmm. He thought about it for a while. He gave it serious consideration and, and said, you know, John, I, I, I would love to have you stay with us, but... I think it's time for you to go start your own thing. And I will support you in starting your own thing. So he actually 
even like emailed all of the copy blogger subscribers to let them know when I was starting my own site. Oh, that's so, really nice and, of it. Yeah, and charged me nothing for that. So that's, I had a very supportive relationship with them. I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And that's another reason, by the way, people look at my career and they say, you took off like a rocket, you know, you, you make all of this money now. Well, I mean, I went to work at Copyblogger, which at the time was the biggest writing website in the world. I managed 200 writers. Mm. Then I went from there to working for No Patel. No Patel paid me as a consultant to build his writing team for his startup at the time, Kissmetrics. And that built up to be a valuable brand. It did. I mean, he sold it for, I don't know how much, but it, I think it ended up, we were at over a million visitors a month. And um, I mean, it, it wasn't me. I just built the initial team. But after doing that, it, it kind of made me realize that I knew what I was doing and gave me the confidence. And then, and also, it gave me a lot of connections to people like Brian, to people like Neil. And so when I asked for support, they were more than happy to, to help out. And because of, number one, building skill, working for other people, and then number two, um, building those connections, when I went to launch my own thing, yeah, it took off like a rocket. And so, you know, again, if I'm a, a beginning writer and I just want to get started, I want to I want to try writing some articles, make a little bit of money on the side. I contact an agency and they would they, they would try me out somehow on on something or like what would I could I write about whatever I want and what what would happen? So the agency is going to tell you that we have work available in these five subject areas. Pick one. Or they may look at your portfolio and want to pick one as well. It helps to have at least one or two writing samples. They don't have to be on like a big professional website. They can be a Google Doc, okay? The, the agency doesn't care. So I write with a good style? Like what's, what's the stylistic requirement? You know, do, do I need to be a, a good writer? Yeah, so what they're looking for often surprises people. And this is where it's really helpful. And this is where Smart Blogger fits in. I mean, we, we sell courses to teach people how to do this. They're looking to see how well search engine optimized your article is. So being well-written is sort of the foundational requirement, but then they're looking at your headlines, your subheads. Um, are you putting the keyword in the first few paragraphs? Uh, if they're really advanced, they may look at other articles ranking for that keyword and compare your outline to their outline and see huh. how close they are. It's a lot more organized than, than I thought it was. Like, it's a lot more scientific. It's scientific, and it's, it's fairly objective. And it's also fairly fast. So what, what surprises a lot of our students is I mean, they, they reach out and they say, you know, I'm, I'm John Morrow, you know, I'd love to write for you. What, what that agency actually hears is I'm a potential writer, I may or may not be good. So the first thing they're going to ask you is for your portfolio link for a writing sample. They send it over and they don't even remember your name and who you are until after they've read your sample. And once they've read your sample, someone who's done this a lot, like I have, I, I can tell within 10 seconds of looking at someone's writing sample whether or not they know what they're doing. So and it's a... So you're, you're, you're looking at, 
again, things like the the headline, does it attract you? The Are the important keywords closer to the top? What else are you looking for? Are you looking for storytelling? Not for a content writer. Really? For a, for a copywriter, yeah. That's so interesting. I would think it was the other way around. No, for, for content, well, here's the reason why. I mean, just the brutally honest reason why. Google doesn't care about stories. Yeah. Um, what they... What they do care about is time on page, okay? So the other things I would look for are if they have embedded videos that shows they're thinking about time on page or if they have examples to illustrate their concepts, which is a type of story, but it's you know giving a two or three sentence example to illustrate some point that you're making. Um, having a lot of those types of examples tend to keep people on the page. So a sophisticated writer uh, will actually be using those kinds of techniques to increase the to come on page as well. And uh, a really good editor and strategist will actually look for the presence of those kinds of things. Yeah, and I would say that, like you say, a, a good writer, even writing a book, thinks about those things. I, I don't want people <laughs> to put the book down and start going, you know, scrolling on TikTok. I want people to turn the next page on the book. So I'll leave, you know, every, I tell people every page should have a cliffhanger, even like mm -hmm. a mini cliffhanger in it, just mm -hmm. to keep people going. Like, oh, here's an example not to tell you, but then wait till you see later on this other, you know, whatever it is. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Let's say for someone who's more a social media person and they write on LinkedIn or they write on Quora, or they write on Medium or their blog or whatever. What if they don't know all this and they simply want to use skills like these to increase their number of followers on, on Medium or Twitter or whatever? What techniques do you find kind of carry over to the social media influence space? So the social media space is a little bit different. Search content is driven by how happy you make Google. Um, social content is driven by engagement metrics only. So what I mean by engagement metrics only are the click-through rate on your tweet, you know, if you're writing a Twitter thread, are they clicking the, the more link? Are they, are they scrolling down on your Twitter thread? The same thing on YouTube, uh, the click-through rate on your thumbnail image is a huge, huge factor. 
from there, they're actually the biggest factor is how much time are they spending on your content? Hmm. Now, what, what's correlated the most in the social setting to, and, and this has been studied scientifically by people like Jonah Berger, Dr. Jonah Berger. He wrote a book called Contagious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's been on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the biggest driver, there, there are many, but the biggest driver is how much emotion do you make the person feel? Uh, which is why we see clickbait so often on social platforms is they're, they're trying to get an emotional spike out of you, even when maybe it's not deserved. But creating those emotional spikes is what social is about. And then keeping the people watching and entertained as they, as they consume your content. So the type of writer, here's what I've noticed about different types of writers. Copywriters actually typically do very well on social. Hmm. Content writers typically do not do as well on social. Because I, well, I would say because copywriters almost have, I don't want to say no shame, but copywriters are very good at saying, I lost 40 pounds just eating chocolate cake and then yeah. this happened and you yeah. have to click and engage. <laughs> and, and as a copywriter, what you learn, your skill set is, is grabbing attention, keeping attention, building trust, keeping trust. But I would think content writers would need the same. I mean, certainly storytellers need the same thing. And, and that's where I would think, you know, content writers are trying to explain something. And I find stories often the bridge to get a story from one brain to another brain. Yeah. And so well, I would think content writers need to do that as well. For really advanced terms. So one, one way to think about Google, and, and this doesn't occur to people, um, Google is actually, every search term is a fight to the death to see who can get to the top. Hmm. Okay. And if you don't get to the top, you don't have a chance to grab the attention of that person. Now, for some terms, getting to the top is easy because you're, you're facing a whole bunch of people who don't know what they're doing. And by the way, that's the majority of the content on the internet. Most of the time, a student who knows the things that I just talked about will wipe the floor with everyone else they're writing against because those people don't even know that much, right? But like, what's one technique that they might use? One trick. Uh, just for example, putting a percentage on their headline. Hmm. It increases, I mean, that's a trick. It increases the number of people clicking on the article. Uh, beginning with a number, that's why you see so many list headlines. So, and that's just the click-through, right? A trick for like the opening is to make a bold promise about exactly what the person is going to get from reading the article. Hmm. Um, you see that with YouTube videos too. They make a bold promise in the first few seconds. Should you be, you know, contradictory with a public opinion? So I feel like a lot of people, I, I think sincerely, like the articles of mine that have done the best are when I would usually be angry at some aspect of public opinion and mm -hmm. write an article uh, expressing my view. And wh it, whether I intended it to or not, those would tend to get the most views, sometimes to my great detriment. <laughs> Uh, on, on social, any sort of con contrarian uh, articles are, are going to do really well. On, on search, 
Google actually punishes contrarians. It's mm. it's it's not impossible. And that's why you tell me, like, you know, I've never really paid that much. Because the the type of writer you are is is much more geared towards social. Um people who are geared towards search are typically writing evergreen content that's that's gonna be relevant for a decade. They're typically not responding to current events. And and Google actually values people who follow with the herd. Um, it's one of the things I dislike about Google is they punish contrarian opinions. So if you want to write an article with a completely different structure and with a completely different conclusion than the people already ranking for that term, it's actually harder for you to rank than if you just sort of parroted the same advice. How does it know that I'm being contrary to the higher ranking articles? Google is so incredibly smart. The only accurate way to describe it these days is AI. It understands exactly what every point you make us hmm, on an article. So fascinating. And 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 again with social, let's say I'm I'm thinking about social and I want an article to go viral or I want a tweet to go viral. It, you're saying it's the opposite? Like what what so you're saying use a percentage, use numbers, have an emotionally compelling title. What what other aspects might make a post? Not necessarily on Twitter, but let's even say like Medium or LinkedIn yeah. or Quora or whatever, mm-hmm. like, a, like an actual post go go viral. So a story. Mm-hmm. I, all of my articles that have gone viral, I mean, so my, my site Unstoppable, um, it got something like a million visitors the first week wow. um, off of social. And it was all social, no search. And the reason why is that's a very emotional story-driven post. And, and this was the, the, the other point I was going to make about search. Stories begin to matter. Like, let's say you have a checklist of 10 things to make an article rank. And let's say you have two different writers and they both know this checklist. Who's going to win at that point? Right? And that's where things like stories and actually being a good copywriter in addition to a good content writer begin to matter. So when you have really competitive terms, for example, if you wanted to make, if you wanted to rank for how to make money online, the article that would rank for that term or content marketing uh, would have to be something to where you're doing more than just the things on the checklist. And so those writers, there aren't that many of them. Um, I, I used to be one of them. So I used to be one of the people that companies would come to when they'd already done everything on the checklist and they wanted someone to write something that, that ranked and I could typically win. And because of that, just to write the article, they would pay me five to $10,000 wow. to write the article. And there are other writers now who were in that same category um, where they only write about extremely competitive topics. And what would be something that's not on the checklist? Stories. Stories. So, and, have, <laughs> and, and look, that's not easy, writing a good story. You have it's to know not. the components of a story and be good at it, at, at spinning one. Yeah, in general, there are five Ds. It's what, it's what we teach our students. Um, so the first is depth. So you can go more in depth than anyone else. Um, the second is drama. So that's stories. You create a dramatic... I'm speaking of drama in the terms of theater rather than um, conflict, right? Um, so it's drama. Design is the third D. 
So it's you could have a really incredible page design. It could actually cause you to outrank your competitors just because there's something about this design on the page that's so compelling. Um, the fourth is data. So you could present data and infographics in a really compelling, interesting way. You could have data that other people don't have. And then the fifth is distinctions. And distinctions are saying things that are genuinely new ideas, that are genuinely new types of thought leadership. So what of those, I would say the hardest is probably the new ideas. It is. And... My prediction is, in the world of AI, it's the only one that's going to have long-term value. You're probably right, because, for instance, I mean, at least right now, as a writer, how do I distinguish myself from an AI-written post is my own personal stories. I can go out and experience something that's new mm -hmm. and then write about it. Mm -hmm. So like, I can go, you know, let's say I was writing about dieting. In one year, I could try... 52 different diets and write about what happened. AI is probably not going to be able to write an article like that anytime soon. No, it's, and I've experimented with this. So one of the things that I'm doing right now is actually preparing to, to launch a, an AI startup regarding writing, specifically email writing is the area where we're focusing. And the big thing that you see is that anything that's experiential, AI does a really terrible job writing that kind of content. It's far worse than a human. And the reason why I think is, number one, AI doesn't have really any experience, but also there are different types of intelligence. The type of intelligence that AI has is taking in, synthesizing, and then regurgitating information. It's really, really good at that. It's not so good at things like empathy, emotion, genuine novel thought. And really, when you get deep into those, the, the writers who are going to be in trouble the fastest are the ones who are just learning, synthesizing, and regurgitating information. Sort of like reporters. Like, like AI should write the New York Times soon or, or yeah. um, any newspaper really like reporters and I'm not criticizing reporters. Yeah. I'm just saying because of the limitations on reporters, like there's a space limitation, there's content limitations and so on. AI can usually fit within those limitations. And AI will almost certainly in very short order within a matter of months at that particular type of writing do a better job than 99% of reporters. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I've been experimenting a little bit with, um, and this has just been a fun experiment. Uh, I've been having an AI write a book simply by me just guiding it, you know, mm -hmm. and then it'll, it'll, I'll ask it about something about neuroscience and it'll spit out some chemicals and I'll say, tell me the benefits of this one yeah. chemical you just mentioned. And then it'll write a whole thing. Tell me who benefited from using this chemical. And it struggles to think of examples, but it comes up with examples. Mm -hmm. So it's it's fascinating to to use AI to write something, you know, tens of thousands of words. Here's here's what's really cool though, and and here's what you're going to see in the future, I think. Um, and it's one of the things I've been experimenting with is I I tell it my story, and I write it out without worrying too much about 
the format or, or how compelling the story is. And then I tell it, turn that into a really compelling story. And can AI do that yet or no? Yes, it can. Using ChatGPT or some other AI? Yeah, using ChatGPT. Yeah. Wow. So what is it? What do you think it does to make it more compelling at that point? So the the thing that works the best is to give it other examples of really compelling stories. Mm -hmm. um, say here are three examples of really compelling stories. Um, here's my story that I want to tell. Write a story in this style. If if you do that, you typically get good results. That's so interesting. So that potentially starts to get in the way of like, I don't want to say literary writers, but like even fiction writers and, and so on. Well, what, what I view it as, I, I think the future of AI is going to be, at least in terms of writing, I don't think it's going to replace all writers. I think it's going to replace the word processor. I think instead of going into uh, Google Docs or 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 Microsoft Word or wherever you're going, um, you're going to go to an AI prompt and you're going to have a, a writing assistant who you will feed it your novel ideas and it will express them in super interesting ways that you can then choose from to publish on the web. That is so fascinating. And how does this get in the way of what you do? Like you're training students to be good both copywriters and search writers and content strategists and so on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but already there are AI tools to figure out the right content strategies and write these content briefs. How much further until you don't have students? Yeah, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. The first answer is starting this year, we're going to begin training our students on AI and how to use AI to supplement their work. Um, That'll be the first step to, to help protect them in the future because I believe that'll make their careers much longer. Over the long term, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, I think, I mean, we're very early on. It's hard to make predictions on that long of a time scale. I, I think it's possible that we'll, we'll have bigger things to worry about than just AI replacing writers. I think it'll be replacing... 90, 95% of professions at that point. And then what do you think will happen to the world? It's the question of ages, right? Yeah. What I... Like, like I, to take, take lawyers, right? Yeah. So there are lawyers who have made a living from simply responding to parking tickets for people. Mm -hmm. And they charge, mm -hmm. you know, 100 bucks. They get people off of their $200 parking ticket and yeah. boom. But now AI is actually really good at that. Like AI knows mm -hmm. the law better than the lawyers and mm -hmm. can send the letters to the to the courts that are better than what the lawyers send. Mm -hmm. And so there are now like companies using that are, you know, lawyers.ai. I don't know the names of some companies, but there are AI-based companies that just mm -hmm. do this for very cheap. Any profession that relies on processing and regurgitating information is probably going to be eliminated, or at least you're going to start seeing the trend. I think this year you'll start seeing it. Yeah. So so again, like reporters and journalists, uh lawyers. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe some kind of some types of doctors, like for instance, people who read X-rays or mm -hmm. people who are just interpreting scientific data to make a diagnosis. Trying to think, what else? What are other professions? Even, uh, I mean, accountants. Accountants, yeah. Um, I can't wait until they do that. It's so hard to find 
a good accountant. I mean, even some types of engineering could potentially be replaced. I mean, it's already starting to write code. So anytime you have someone writing non-novel, I mean, you have a lot of developers in the world who make a living from taking components and smashing them all together and calling it code and selling it to a to a client um, where that's what they do with their job. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. I'm not criticizing it. It's it, In the past, it's been an absolutely critical skill, but I think there's a very good chance AI will be able to do that particular thing better than better than humans pretty quickly. It's it's going to be really interesting because I do think the common uh, human AI combinations. There's evidence to suggest that does better than any than AI or humans on their own. So hopefully most jobs will be like that. That it'll just be elevated so that you know the best lawyers say we'll use AI, but AI won't replace them. Um, yeah. You know, and again, like I see I see evidence from like for the computer chess world, computers can be humans now you know, a hundred times out of a hundred can beat the world champion mm-hmm. of chess, but a human paired with a computer can outperform a computer. Yeah. What I'm saying now, so I've probably spent, I don't know, three or 400 hours now with OpenAI, And the writing that I can generate being a master writer, I can generate things that absolutely blow other people away. It's indistinguishable from what I would write myself. What do you do with the AI to make it just simply over the top? Is it what you were saying earlier about, you know, feed it some compelling stories and then say, make this story compelling like those? So I'll give you a little hack mm-hmm. that, you, that you can try. The, the, the answer is there are a lot of things I do, but the... Um, one hack is I break down the components of make of what make good writing. So, for example, I won't just say write me an introduction about X topic. I'll say write me an X topic using the rhetorical devices of a Barack Obama speech. You know what? I've done that as well. It's amazing. Yeah, I I I had uh, this. I did this just yesterday. Actually, I said to ChatGPT, write me a speech about climate change in the style of Martin Luther King. Yeah. And I swear to God, it used every professional speech writing technique. Yeah. And, and I could see, like, I could almost hear it in Martin Luther King's voice, like uh, the, the speech that came out. So the, but, but so here's the thing. The average writer that is going to be using chat GPT won't know to type in use rhetorical devices of like they it won't even occur to them to input those instructions and you see the same types of things in the art driven ai so i mean i've i've played around with with uh dolly and uh a few of the others and um someone who's a professional artist or photographer the prompts that they put in are way better than the prompts that I put in. And because of that, the results that they can generate are stunning. And so the way that I view it is, you know, for the artist, for for the or for the photographer, the AI is a new form of paintbrush or, or lens 
for a writer, it's a new form of word processor. You're right. And, and it's like when the internet you know, was getting popular, suddenly everyone was a writer because you could just write on your own blog and people thought they were good writers, but there was still a skill component that separated out the writers from the typewriters. And uh, it's the same thing that's going to happen here, I think, is that you still have to tell a story that is unique to you. Yep. And and the AI won't be able to do that. Now, the AI will be able to simulate it pretty good when it sees a lot of your stories. But when you have a new thing to say, it's not going to be able to do that. Yep. The other thing it can't do, I mean, just like I talked about, is the the different forms of intelligence. Um, so AI is really bad at empathy, is another thing that you find. Like if you ask it, what are the common fears of, of mothers with three-year-old children? It's not very good at answering that type of question. It'll give you some things, but they're very surface-level answers. But I imagine it will get better at that. It might, it might. But so here's, here's the thing that, I've been doing that creates extraordinary results. Um, I'll say um, the thought that that keeps um, a mother awake at night is that someone will snatch their kid walking to school. That's what really makes them afraid. And so, therefore, I want you to use intense emotional language. I want you to write a story where a mother is the hero and to where she expresses her own internal dialogue to the reader. Mm. And, to where, and to where she uses, uses her experience as a mother to write a persuasive piece on the child safety. You do something like that, you're going to get way better results. Way better so, results. So it still requires like a deep understanding of what it is you do, like whether you're a writer or a lawyer or a psychologist or whatever, and then you really use AI as a tool rather than kind of creating this generic AI mess. Yeah, I don't think the generic AI stuff, I mean, for some things, it's fine. If I want to learn how to cook rice, just go to ChatGPT, how do I cook rice? And it'll, it'll tell me. Um, and I don't really need anything super interesting there. But for other topics that, that are not as pragmatic, I, I think that type of human perspective is still going to be really important to people. I wonder if this would be a good augmented reality app that let's say you're at a party and you're bad at small talk and you have, you have the AI that's listening to all the conversations you're in and it will suggest things occasionally. Oh, he just said this. Ask him. It sounds like there's a little bit more emotional content there. Ask him X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I mean, it's a great idea. Um, it'll be great at that type of thing. It'll be phenomenal at, at that type of thing. And That's it'll be fast. Now, you really get to interesting things when, imagine when OpenAI or whatever the AI is at that time is available on something like a neural link. Like what yeah. Elon Musk is working at where it's basically in your head all the time. Um, and and that's where you get to some future possibilities for mankind that are very, it'll be a, very different. Do you think it'll be a better world or a worse world? Because I feel like do, do we lose our humanity a little bit there? We're all we're all basically just talking to everyone else's AI in their head. <laughs> I mean, I 
I, I may regret saying this out loud, but um, if you ask the Neanderthal, is it a better world or a worse world? What do you think you would say? Yeah, he probably would say uh, it's a better world. Although I did read some science fiction books by, I think the guy's name was Robert Howard, where there was a Neanderthal living in modern day US. And it was a more environmental focused kind of book. So he was a little unhappy, but clearly we live in a better world now. I mean, I, I think so. I think it'll be, I think it's a, I mean, to me, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, it's clearly better in many ways. Um, on the other hand, the Neanderthal may be like, well, well, all Neanderthals are extinct. So therefore, it's a worse world. Uh, so, I mean, it, it depends on how you view it. Um, well, you could you, one yeah. metric is the like the Steven Pinker metric of how much violence there is per per capita. So twenty percent of Neanderthals died of like violent of violent wounds. Yeah, uh, back in the day, and now it's you know a thousandth of a percent or something yeah, like it's that. Tiny, tiny. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think from objective measures, uh, the world is probably going to be a lot better. Um, now, is it if you compare? It to the uh, nostalgia from our past on on really maybe to come into our life where we remember fondly and we wish we could go back to. I, I think the answer is um, you probably won't get to go backward, and so savor the the moments of your life that you have now, the experience that you have now, um, because what like it or don't like it. Um, what humanity is moving forward to is most likely going to be very, very different. Well, John, words of the wise, and I, and I hope people uh, follow that. And and John, what I I want to take your writing courses now. Like, how do people <laughs> how do people find you? Like, it sounds like I feel like you you gave us a lot of good information. You left some out. Where where do people read the rest? Because there's I know there's a mountain of you. You send me emails every day, and I know there's a mountain of information here. We do. The best thing to do is to go to smartblogger.com and just get on our email list and just read everything we have to say. And if you want to become a, a freelance writer, I mean, we can we can help you do it. You will be better prepared than anyone else for the future of AI. And um, the other cool thing that we do is we basically have onboarding programs at a lot of different agencies to where our graduates just kind of automatically go to the top of the pile at all the wow. different agencies. So that just makes it a whole lot easier. Um, so yeah, if you want to do that, that go to smartblogger.com. All right. And John, John Morrow, uh, once again, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I, I hope you have a lot of good luck going to Monterey, Mexico and, uh, you know, getting all the healthcare that, that you need. And, uh, I look forward to to having you on the show again. You're always you're always welcome on the podcast. So when your when your email AI uh, program comes out, let me know. And we'll we'll talk about that. Awesome. I, I appreciate it. I love being here. Thanks for having me, James. Thanks, John. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.